vendors alike, welcome to Braving the Elements, Nickelodeon's podcast about all things Avatarverse. I'm Janet Varney, and our beloved Dante Bosco is, I am afraid, still on location. He can't be here today. He is absolutely here in spirit because I know he loves what we're about to talk about just as much as I do, and yet he still shall be very missed. Well, last week, we told you that we would need a whole episode of the podcast to talk about the Cave of Two Lovers and specifically the let's use the word phenomenon that is the song Secret Tunnel. We thought the perfect guests to bring into Braving the Elements to get into this would be our wonderful composer, whom you know from Braving the Elements season one, Jeremy Zuckerman, and one of the writers of the episode and song lyrics and a fantastic writer who has worked on many other episodes. We're so happy to welcome onto the podcast for the first time, Josh Hamilton, a.k.a. Joshua Hamilton. Listen, do you want me to refer to you as your writing credit or your regular life credit? <laughs> do I qualify as a friend enough to not yeah. call you Joshua or would you like me to, Sir Joshua? Uh, <laughs> Josh, all the way. Joshua, okay, I don't know. I just think I just wanted more letters up there for my credit. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, podcast world. Thank you for having me. This is really awesome to be here and to see everybody and to talk about this magical song that Jeremy, of course, did so much awesome work on. And thank you. Ay, yeah, yeah. Well, before we start talking about Secret Tunnel, I feel like we need to just get, you know, Jeremy has done the podcast before, so he knows the kind of bender he would be. We've really dug into some of the meat of the show in the kind of broader picture past secrets and tunnels. So <laughs> I would love to hear, you know, just for a, a couple minutes, if you'll indulge us, Josh, and tell us kind of where you were in your life when you came into Avatar The Last Airbender. Oh, just the show in general. I um, I started as a PA at Nickelodeon on Dora the Explorer. Hmm. <laughs> nice. But um. I'm actually from Hawaii. Uh, I graduated from the University of Hawaii. They had a communications program, which I did, and they let me take theater classes and write. It was like, do whatever you want. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I even wrote a screenplay Excellent. for my thesis. But I would come. I came over here as a PA, and I would just give you know scripts to anyone who would read them. And I'm like, I want to be a writer. I love writing, everything about writing. And they gave me this opportunity to be a writer's assistant for all these pilots that were potentially going to become picked up. And Avatar The Last Airbender was one of the pilots. And this is really very early on. And I did very little, but we actually built a writer's room. Um, Aaron Ehas came aboard. And this is all before like the official pickup. But every, everyone had this momentum going and they had this great pilot, you know, and everyone was just like, it was buzzing. And of course, I got picked up and it was great. And I like was like, this is the best day in the, my life. You know, I was really excited. And I got to be the writer's assistant. So that's how I sort of became, came into the world of Avatar Last Airbender. And it just opened a world of anime for me, which I never really knew about before. Sure. A lot of people don't love that. They're like, oh, you must be like an anime geek. And did you grew up watching, you know, Miyazaki and all. And I'm kind of like, I love that stuff, but I didn't grow up with it. <laughs> so it was great. That was kind of how I got my uh, foot in the door. And I was just... Season one, I was a writer's assistant and I just learned everything I could, how to break stories. You know, Aaron was in the room. He's the head writer. Mike was there, the show creator. And I think we had like three or four writers. So it was a pretty big writer's room and it was built sort of like primetime television would do their writer's room. And so we're putting cards up on the board, breaking like act one, act two, act three, every scene. And it was like, I didn't know, I thought I knew about writing and I didn't know about writing and I learned like everything I could. 
so that was really my experience just coming into the show and getting this awesome opportunity. And then by season two, I got to write an episode. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the very first one I wrote was The Cave of Two Lovers. Yes. <laughs> All right. One of the things I love about this as I'm sitting here realizing I hadn't thought about it until I'm looking at both of your handsome faces is just this idea of what it's like to experience the show from the genesis of an episode where there's nothing. You're coming, Josh, into a situation in which you're sort of going, okay, we've sort of been planning this arc and these are some of the things that are going to happen. But especially early on, post-pilot, everybody's kind of still getting their feet wet in terms of what it's going to take to animate all of these moves and fight sequences and things that you guys are bandying about. It's so simple when it's on a little white card and you know, you're know you just sort of using words to describe something and you put it up there and then it has to go through this whole crazy process before it gets to you, Jeremy, right? I mean, you see more of, you see something that has come through a series of phases and then you are tasked with bringing it to life in this whole different way. I just love the juxtaposition of that. Yeah, it's really interesting how Josh and I are sort of on opposite ends of the process. Yeah, I often would have, like, I wouldn't see a script. I wouldn't really see much until you know, all the dialogue was recorded and all the animation was done and everything was cut and the, everything was locked. I wouldn't even see like rough cuts. Yeah. But what was interesting, I think I might may have talked about this, was that I was friends with Brian as he and Mike were developing the show. And I did get to see a lot of that creative process, that really early stuff. And that was wild to see. And it really like gave me a connection to this that I don't think I have with anything else. Mm. You know what I mean? Like since, you know, anything else that I've worked on since, obviously I've gotten really into stuff, but I've never had that same sort of connection, like seeing it birth, seeing it develop over time and sort of like writing that whole process and sort of being a fly on the wall. And it was funny when Josh was talking about how he was really, they were working before things, before he actually got picked up. I think we all kind of knew it was really special and it was going to happen. And I don't remember really feeling like, if this happens, it'll be great. I was just like, Avatar is going to happen and it's going to be amazing. You know what I mean? Because I could just see like all the creativity that was pouring into it from Ryan and Mike. And it was really inspiring to see. Yeah. As far as like the process goes, I wouldn't see the episodes until they were mostly done, at least in terms of the acting and the animation. And Josh, for you, were you seeing like once you had written how much interaction were you having with, you know, sketches and people like Giancarlo and animatics and, and stuff? How much of the bits and pieces were you seeing before you would see a final episode? Did you see a whole lot of that process or was it kind of the opposite for you where you would see a more finished version and sort of gasp like, oh, my God, this is what it looks like that was just on a card, a white card, you know? Yeah, it was kind of interesting because I had the, like I said, I was a writer's assistant, so I had to like poke in a lot. Mm. By the time I got to be a writer and I got to sit back and just say, I'm done with it, you know, and and sort of like get to let other people deal with that. In different shows, I do different elements, but definitely when I was a writer on Avatar Last Airbender, I got to see a lot of the animatics and we would go to a lot of the meetings for animatics and kind of poke in, maybe add jokes or kind of like see if action was working out the same way, you know, on the same page with what Mike and Brian wanted. A lot of times it would be way over almost that almost happened every time the episodes would run long. Mm. So, you know, there are storyboards that have been like probably animatic at like 25 minutes where it should be 22. And so we kind of get the task of cutting things or attempting to cut things 
in the writer's room. So there is a lot of steps. We would see a lot of steps. We would see designs. But even at that point, even after you sent all that stuff off and shipped it off to Korea, when you got it back, it was still magical. It was still beyond you know anything. And by the time the music was set in, then it was like, this is real. The music, yeah. I never got to tell you, Jeremy, but you know, it blows my mind. I, oh. I remember the first episode, the Avatar theme song. I don't know if that's what it's called. The uh, I can't do it because I can't sing. But he like <laughs> he does his like Avatar uh, tornado whirlpool thing, and he's fighting Zuko, and it's like da na na da na 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 na. There you go. And it's like, oh you my god, it. it's Woo-hoo. cinematic. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it yeah. makes it more yes. of a movie than just this isn't. It doesn't feel like it's just a TV show. It's like Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter or something yeah, really it's big, epic. really epic. Oh, well, so I definitely that. had that magical feeling when it would come back. Oh. Well, thanks. I I remember actually um, Ben and I came up with that theme together because in the early stages when we were working on the animatics and stuff before the show was even made, like, a, you know, pencil tests. And I think we did two pencil tests. Or no, we did a pencil test and a pilot, like an 11 minute pilot. We worked on everything together, the music and the sound design. And then we branched off once the show started because it was just too crazy to try to do everything. Um, but we were working actually in the house that Brian and Ben were renting together. And we were in this weird little like makeshift studio that was essentially like a little cubicle hallway thing uh-huh. right next to the bathroom, <laughs> like a sliding <laughs> janky door. The uh-huh. ideal spot. Uh-huh. Yeah, the ideal. I mean, nothing but the best. And we were working on the theme and then we we're plunking around and then Brian from the other room was like, that's it. That's the theme. Wow. Wow. We're like, cool. All right. Well, great. <laughs> so he like sort of knew like a lot of times, you know, you plunk around and you sort of don't have perspective as to what's working and what isn't. So that was kind of amazing to have Brian like off in a, you know, a couple rooms over working on character design and the story and things of that sort. And he'd be sort of giving us space, but listening, you know? And so a few of those early themes that really persisted throughout the whole series were made during that period. And it was just such a such a humble time, you know, it was it was like we were breaking every rule they teach you in film school and, you know, music school in terms of scoring. And, you know, we were sort of doing everything wrong, but it worked. I remember like when we first did the pilot, there was this really long six minute action scene. And like you, Josh, this was our first big project, first big gig. I'd done a bunch of commercials, but not, you know, show. And the whole six minutes was like one musical sort of like idea with no changes. And we didn't know what we were doing. You know what I mean? So <laughs> Brian came in. He's like, oh, this needs to happen here. This needs to change here. This needs to change here. We need to shift here. We need to highlight this moment here. We need to come down here. We need to go away here. You know what I mean? Wow. And he explained everything that needed to happen. And then it was like a light bulb. It's like, oh, that's how that works. <laughs> okay, cool. So it's kind of amazing that we even got to, to get the gig. <laughs> I guess Brian heard something, you know. He definitely did. And, you know, it, that just occurred to me as you were talking about that. Just understanding how important it is for showrunners to know what they want and to be able to, they want to bring in people that they know are going to do a better job at the thing they want than they themselves could. But to also right. be able to articulate that is such a huge gift. I feel like there are so many people, and I'm one of them, who wouldn't know how to articulate that, who would say, like, something's missing. Mm-hmm. Good luck. Like, I just wouldn't know (laughs) even how to express that, you know? Totally. I mean, a lot of people feel that way when they're first working with composers, if they don't have any musical training, which I... Do you have musical training? I think... I feel like you do. Yeah, but I still feel like I, you know... But that's that's okay, because it's actually better to not get too technical, you know, when dealing with these things. Because I always tell people who are, like, new directors or don't have a lot of confidence in this area, I'm like, you know what needs to happen in terms of, like, story and emotion Mm -hmm. and beats... And, you know, when you act or you're dealing with actors, you know what to tell them. Just tell us the same thing. It's the same yeah. stuff. You know, it's just a slightly different medium, but it really is the same stuff. 
That's you know, great. You don't need like some special vocabulary. Yeah. Um, but Brian did have a little bit of an advantage because one, we were all really good friends, so we felt really comfortable and safe. And two, he did have a good bit of musical background. And he Very was, much so, yeah. I mean, he knows way more bands than I do. He's always turning me on to new music and he's got like great taste and he listens to so much, you know, he's, he's constantly listening to stuff. So he's <laughs> kind of like, you know, an encyclopedia when it comes to music and he's full of references. And there was a lot of that too. There were a lot of references um, in Avatar, not Korra as much, but in Avatar, like so many references. And that, yeah. that helped, you know, it gave us somewhere to push off from. Well, speaking about references too, Josh, you know, you said as a writer's assistant kind of coming into this fresh and not being as familiar with some of the stuff that Mike and Brian were so inspired by, was that kind of the way that you got to know it? Were you simultaneously going back and looking at Miyazaki? Because if someone said, you know, that Miyazaki, were you like, the writer's assistant needs to go watch this movie immediately? Can we time out this conversation? Because I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, yes, I definitely <laughs> did. I did go watch that. I went back and watched all Miyazaki stuff, you know, really like dove into a lot of different animes at the time, different series. But a lot of the writers in the writer's room were primetime comedy writers. Sure. You know, they were, they wanted to be. Also, they weren't in this world as well. Yeah. So they were kind of discovering it along with me. And we were kind of like having those conversations at the same time. So it wasn't kind of like we had an ultra geek in there that knew everything. And then um, me who knew nothing. So it was great. Yeah. And it was fun to like kind of watch and learn and see where we're pulling references from. And of course, it's like anime has some of the craziest plot lines and storylines that it's hard to keep up with. I love how crazy they are. And so it was really Mm -hmm. fun to like to get to explore that world I never knew. Yeah. And then when the show started airing, we've talked a little bit with like Tim and John O'Brien about just the experience of going on to like a chat, like a forum and realizing that people pretty early on in the Internet, the way this all lined up, (laughs) needed to find a place to talk about shipping and, you know, the hybrid animals and like plot (laughs) points and what might happen next. Did you expect that at all when you were working on the show? Like, did you understand that the fandom would form so quickly? Kinda. I mean, it was nice. kind of like what Jeremy was saying, where you felt like there was a buzz. So and I, I remember Lord of the Rings had come out. Yeah. You know, it was huge. Peter Jackson and it, everyone loved it. I loved it. And this really felt a lot like it. It felt epic and it felt really big. And so when my friends would ask me what I'm working on, of course, when you're like younger, everything you're working on is the greatest show ever. (laughs) (laughs) But this one really was. Yeah, (laughs) it stood the test of time. That's That's for sure. (laughs) It was. And, And so we would kind of look on, but we didn't have Twitter like we do now or whatever it is. So it was really hard to find those little, the groups of the chats that were people talking about. But I dug. And I looked Uh and I found them (laughs) and I learned about shipping. I didn't know what shipping was. How do you feel about shipping now? I mean, did you have a ship? Again, John O'Brien was like, I feel like we argued over Zutara and versus the Katang. Like, you know, you sort of have a sense of where you think you want the story to go. Did you have uh, ships like that before you even knew what ships were? (laughs) But no, I did not. <laughs> but we did fight. He was right. I do remember arguing about that. Katang is. I'm Zutari, you know. I'm just yeah, an originalist. You are. Oh, you Dante know, so I read sad. the Bible a long right time now. ago, and it said they're supposed to get together. Zutara, so, Zutara. Uh, you know, I still think we did it wrong. That's no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Zutara ship. I hear you loud and clear. Yeah. Favorite hybrid animal or just one that you're like, hmm. oh, how could you not love so and so as obscure hmm. or as general as it might be? Um, the platypus bear comes to mind. <laughs> I know John O'Brien gave up with it you and it ended up, it's an up laid an egg mm. or something. <laughs> I don't know if John O'Brien told the story. This is my point of view. I was a writer's assistant. <laughs> 
<laughs> this is going to make him sound bad. This is perfect. Oh, good. Um, perfect. That's my favorite kind of story for John O'Brien. Juicy. He was there. A few other writers were in the room. Matt Hubbard, somebody else. Anyway, they're early on. They all had like Aaron was there and Mike was there. What are some, you know, ideas you guys, but, and they, most everyone had these like kind of fully fleshed out ideas and like in a beginning, middle and end. And John O'Brien pulls out a piece of paper, like crumbled up just half sheet of paper. And he's like, Oh fellas, I didn't really know we were supposed to come up with ideas. And he had like, uh, I got a platypus bear on here. And (laughs) that was like it. That's all he had. And and of course, Mike was like, well, put it on the board. And so we put Platypus Bear on, on the board. This is before it was even a show. And oh. it just stayed there forever and eventually made it into a show. So I really remember Platypus Bear. I love it. That is a That's great awesome. story. And for sure, it, so it, it has not been told. And yes, the crumpled up piece of paper that he has to like smooth chocolate off Just of kind of like, oh, crap, like, what do I got yeah. in my pockets? <laughs> like, oh, here's so a word. <laughs> wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. What kind of bender do you think you would be, Josh? Me? I'm waterbender all the way. I, I like surfing. I like snowboarding. Oh, sure. Uh, so, you know, to be able to control the waves so that they're not too big, but not too small. Yeah. That's ideal. Yeah. <laughs> I love a waterbender. Jeremy, do you remember uh, what your answer was for when we had you on before? I'm so fickle with this. Yeah, you are. Be fickle. So I wanted to say airbender, but it felt obvious because music is pushing air, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But that's really what I should have said. And then I changed it to Firebender just because in the moment I thought about how cool it would be to just just sort of <laughs> just like in the moment fire. you're like, no, it's cool. It's cooler. <laughs> Capturing the impulsivity of fire, yes. <laughs> but I think I gotta go back to air. I think Let's it, go I back think to really air. It's, been, it's always been air. You know, that's what music is, right? Yeah. You got a chance to correct that wrong and correct I that love wrong. the struggle. I feel so yeah. much better now. Oh, good. I'm night. glad you got that off your this chest. Awesome. Meanwhile, Dante is wrapping the present back up and tying the bow and just putting it <laughs> yeah. back. He was really happy it, too. I feel to bad. <laughs> right. I think the fact that he's not here is giving me the ability to, to be honest about this. That's mm. right. You don't That's have that bully pressure. in the corner, the gentle bully. Okay. So I'm going to state the obvious here, which is that season two is suddenly replete with music. Right. There's just more. I mean, obviously, there's wonderful and beautiful music and you get some of the sense of but I'm speaking of lyrical music. Right. The this idea of these. Um, what do you call it, Jeremy? You know, when it's sitting up above the, the scene versus being inside it. Diegetic. That's what I was thinking of. The swell of the <laughs> composition. That's like one of the many hearts of the show, mm. but a big heart of the when show. It's actually happening. In yeah. That world. When it's like a character, you see the character singing it. Yeah, you know, that cracks open in a big way in season two. And of course, this is the episode that really sets that tone and sort of is the pinnacle of that, although it happens early in the season. Were you guys talking about that in the writer's room? Was that something that you were part of too, Jeremy? Were people saying once you got picked up for a second season, was the scuttlebutt kind of like, you know, we should have more songs. Let's kind of flex that a little bit. Like, what was there any of that going on? I'm curious to hear Josh's perspective, because for me, it was not at all discussed other than (laughs) I just finished the season finale for season one, and we were about to go on a nice break. We used to have breaks back then. That was back in the day when people would have breaks, Mm -hmm. you know, when they were working on TV. It was a different time. Yeah. (laughs) So we were getting ready for like a nice three-month break or something, and Mike sent me the script for The Cave of Two Lovers, and he said there was a bunch of on-screen music that needed to be made. He just sort of like notated everything that needed to happen in the script and 
I had just finished the finale and I decided to just knock it out. Sort of like doing your like essay, your term paper before summer break, which is not my style at all. But I was all hmm. fired up from finishing the finale. So I did that. And it was like the most spontaneous, effortless. It was so weird. It was so low pressure for some reason. It was just like, hey, we need some cute like ditties. And it felt very low stakes for some <laughs> reason. Cute you know, and I had my pipa, which is like a Chinese lute. And I played it more like a guitar. Which is good because I can't really play it well. <laughs> I'm playing it like a guitar. It's so hard to play. And so I just recorded like a bunch of stuff and it took probably like, I don't know, an hour and a half, two hours. And I'm definitely not oh, like trying wow. to brag. I'm sort of yeah. like trying to show you like it was very, um, it just didn't feel high stakes for some reason. Like I, I don't think I realized how important those songs were going to be. I definitely didn't realize how important those songs were. I thought they were just going to be like some silly little forgettable moments <laughs> that are like goofy. And I think that like allowed me to just like, write these little tunes and not overthink them. Yeah. I don't think there were any notes or revisions or anything. I think it was just like, great. Oh, wow. Thanks so much for doing that. <laughs> and then like I had to record like a little guide track with my awful singing voice and <laughs> for the actors, you know, and uh, I just sent them everything. And then I was like done and I enjoyed my break. And when Cave of Two Lovers showed up, I couldn't believe it. It was so cool. Like it worked so well. You know, I was shocked. Oh, yeah. yeah. I Absolutely. had no idea that it was going to be so integral to the storyline. But that was my relationship with it. Secret tunnel, secret tunnel, through the mountain, secret, 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 secret tunnel, yeah. I mean, the whole tone of that episode is just if you had let it become overwrought, like it would have suffered for it. You know what I mean? So I think also give yourself the credit of, you know what, I don't need to lean so hard into like the precision of this because it fits so well with what we find out about the character and you know again the sort of it's about the journey you know and the sort of not needing things to be perfect that group of characters are so not overwrought and so it just works so well i think it's a testament to the writing of that script you know it was so clear who these characters were and like like what kind of music they would make you know what i mean it's very easy to imagine yeah i remember the cd coming fast. I have a my own story version of cool. this where it's kind of like yeah, like you said Jeremy, no one said hey, let's put more music in this season or we need more music. It just is it appeared where it appeared. Mm. We kept it. It just did, you know, and everyone was kind of given freedom to I'm thinking about like Tim, I know he wrote some little things. I think Andrew Hubner wrote the Leaves on the Vine song. He may have written the lyrics. The lyrics. Yeah, yes, yeah. the lyrics. Yeah. Leaves from the vine. Falling so slow, like fragile, tiny shells, drifting in the foam. Yeah, all this time I thought Mike had written everything and I'd been giving him credit. And now I feel really bad. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I love we're Mike. Here to he do. deserves a lot of credit. We're but, here to write yes. all those wrongs. Write those wrongs. Yeah. I'm talking in terms of the lyrics, of course. Yeah. Right, right, right. So I wrote the script. And I think in the outline, everything was just kind of like, oh, and they sing a song about this or they sing a song about that. And there wasn't even half as many songs in the outline. You know, it's an outline. It's kind of like they get they have to have some plot points and some character moments. And so when I finally wrote the script, no one had talked about songs or (laughs) they just let me do whatever. So I went back and I opened up the old script, the first draft, and I'm like, Secret Tunnel is really long. (laughs) And Uh, I do remember in the writer's room when we, yeah, it's very long. Lots of verses. I had no idea. I mean, it's a first draft. And this is also the The first script I wrote. And so we get into the rewriting of it. And I don't know who pitched it, but someone's like, why don't we just like cut here and then just say he forgot it and then 
then jump in the secret tunnel. Was, that was ge- <laughs> that was genius because <laughs> it's really bad. <laughs> so good it's so bad it's great oh my god i know okay. so we, we did a bunch and a few i think just stayed it was like everyone's like it's fine and some of them didn't even rhyme there was no like clear melody it wasn't like i was hinting at anything i think i might have had some idea in my head like i'm like okay i kind of like music i play guitar i play drums you know i was in punk rock bands i learned like three chords or whatever so this was kind of like oh this is could be this could be real good, you know, like real music. <laughs> and somehow, if it rhymes, that's not serious stuff. So let's just like have it not rhyme. <laughs> it's funny because it, some of the phrasing was so weird in such a great way. And it worked <laughs> yeah. so well with the characters, you know what I mean? Like it was just like ridiculous yep. and like repeating certain yeah, words. Yeah, there's a sort absurdly. of tumbling of phrases yeah. that's sort of like, well, totally. I'll make this fit in here because <laughs> that's what I got to do. I, exactly. I love Jeremy's like, I just whipped it out and I was like, I was really like, really, I think I was trying to make it great. It was just not working. <laughs> but then, so we get all of them. I think we did like the second or the record draft. We were kind of done with the script. And Tim and I ran to my house. Tim was the other writer, Tim Hedrick. And we're like, let's go record them real fast because I had like a way to do it. I had my guitar and I had a whole little setup. And so we ran to my house for like two or three hours. We just recorded all the songs, like our version with like the guitar and everything. And the next day we come in and we hand it to Brian. Like we recorded the songs, you know, in case you're wondering what they sound like, because obviously the script doesn't really help. And he goes and listens to it a couple hours later. He's like, this is real funny. Real good, real good try. <laughs> and he's like, but Jeremy already did them. And then oh, he hands the CD. I'm like, oh my God, like that fast. It was like, he's, oh, they're done already. Wow. <laughs> if I'd stalled, maybe I would have gotten out of it. <laughs> oh. You're right. Wow. Uh, I listened to him and I was like, these are terrible. Uh. That's no, kidding. I was like, yeah, this is a professional. This guy knows what he's doing. It was awesome. I was like, wow, this is great. I couldn't wow. believe how fast you did them. That's what blew my mind. I'm yeah. sorry I stole your thunder. <laughs> Wow. No, there is no Thunder to Steal. I <laughs> actually have them. I don't have any way to play them. They're like some old file type that I, I can't open them. up. So I went and dug them out, but couldn't listen to them. Oh, wow. You know, I'll send them over to you and you could do something with yeah, them. Yeah, I'd love it. <laughs> oh, this is so satisfying right now. I can't yeah, even tell you. Uh, oh, my God. Wow. Okay, so that's Layers. amazing. Yeah, there's a yeah. ghost version of the mm-hmm. songs. Wow, this is great. <laughs> So obviously now we know that this song means so much to so many people. There have been a million covers of it. My first con that I ever did, period, was San Diego Comic-Con for the premiere of Korra with Mike and Brian. And they said, you know, before we went out on stage, at the end, we would love to sing Secret Tunnel with everyone. And I was like, oh, that sounds nice. And then we went out and there were like 5,000 people in this hall in San Diego. And... The response when we started singing it and when, you know, when Mike and Brian were like, we thought it would be fun if and everybody knew it perfectly. And it was such a wall of sound and it was so moving, you know, it was so lovely. And it's such a great nugget that represents the kind of overall experience of being a part of the Avatar verse. Right. It is. It's sort of like the theme song in the sense that it's like a secret language, not to keep using the word secret, but, you know, it is. And I think the lyrics and the sort of idea of what's happening in the episode has so much more weight than 
maybe you guys realized at the time, or maybe you did, Josh, but, you know, this idea of the Romeo and Juliet of the story, because people loved Avatar so much and continue to do so, you know, all of those kind of human frailties and things that go wrong or ways in which we feel like we can't be our authentic selves, like all of those moments in the show become so iconic and so emotionally important. How did you guys feel when you were writing that part of it? Like, well, we want to have these tunnels. You could have mm-hmm. done it a different way. And instead, yeah. it was the story of, you know, these two people who wanted to find a way to be together. Yeah. When I first pitched it, it really was just sort of like hippie nomads that were going to help kind of be a foil to Sokka, who, you know, is really about getting places. And these guys are more about enjoying the journey. And Mike and Aaron were the ones that said this. I like the story. I really like it. But I feel like there needs to be more. You know, we had the labyrinth and the tunnels. And I think we wanted to introduce airbending and the badger mole. I mean, earthbending, because we knew that Toph was coming up and this is season two Earth. So that felt like a story to me. You know, I was young and and they said, no, we need this. There should be another story in there. And and I think also when they were in the tunnels, I also were in the when I pitched it, it was that they got separated and Aang and uh, Katara ended up together. And that's sort of like we got to push the love element of it to push it even further. They said, hey, let's have this a legend. There should be a legend in there, maybe about like, you know, lovers or something. And I don't remember who came up with it. I'm going to say I did. <laughs> but, <Great. laughs> now it's canon. <laughs> they would do that where it's kind of like, hey, we needs more. Let's do this legend. And then the legend, the cave of two lovers legend became a thing. And then I know we were like, oh, let's do it. Omashu. And so it'll be Omashu. And that I think really started to put it was really great because we get to do this love songs and we got to do a theme of love. And then we got to talk about this Romeo and Juliet style, like romance that was happening in the past while another romance is happening in the present and sort of like what people would do for each other. And so it, it actually like combined so many fun elements with the music. I think it just really tied everything together. And I thought it was fun to be able to do that and have that old legend kind of represent like new love. Oh, it's so great. And the glowing crystals on the ceiling. I have that art book and I don't remember it being mentioned in there. And it, and I've been known to draw a lot of parallels to things thinking maybe they were the inspiration and they totally weren't. Like, I cannot bring up Tron one more time on the show. Mike and Brian are going to be like, <laughs> no, not everything was inspired by Tron. Most things weren't in the show. <laughs> But the cave system in New Zealand that has the little glow worms that are on the ceiling that light up the cave. Are you familiar with this? Because it really reminds me of that. And so I didn't know are if that was like something that was like... luminescent Yeah, or, I don't exactly know about right. those. That's great. And yeah. they're on the ceiling. No. And it feels very romantic when you're in there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, wow. Total coincidence. Nothing to do with it. So what happened with that part? I remember the story. It must have been like the first draft or maybe outline going to first draft. And I came up with with that idea like in script and Aaron was like, hey, that was a great fix. (laughs) And I'm like, "Mm, yeah, it was a great fix. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm going to pay out of pocket to send you to New Zealand uh, for a wonderful getaway. I didn't know you guys have that kind of budget on this show. Oh, yeah, no, I'm listen, we got all the money. I'll report back. It's going to be great. (laughs) Jeremy, what were you going to say? I was saying he's lucky. All right, you can go too. You wrote oh, you you're a brilliant yes. composer. I suppose that's oh, stop. reason enough to send you to that cave. <laughs> I'll bring my CD of songs on the airplane. Yeah, we can listen to them the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> On loop. Yes. 
Well, is there anything that either of you feel like we haven't touched on with respect to this episode or to the music in the episode? Any experiences you've had, like the one I described where I experienced all those people singing it together? Anything like that that's come up for you over the years in the fandom with respect to the song or the, or the episode? I have a very similar. Yours is better than mine, though, but I, it was on an Avatar uh, fan panel, also at San Diego Comic-Con. The room was 500 people. It was big. But I walked in and I was on the panel and they were singing Secret Tunnel. And I just thought, I wrote that. They know that's that's for me. They love me. (laughs) (laughs) Did you say that? I wrote that. You know, they knew it was me, but I don't think they did. You know, they just come together and then they sing that song. And uh, I think it's fun to have, you know, music really brings people together. And that song definitely does. And Dee Bradley Baker is such an ambassador for the song and the show so as good. well. You know, we've we got to do a couple of cons together just in the fall. We knew we wanted to sing with everybody. And it's kind of a regular thing that we do when we're live. And, you know, he loves to do it and he loves to share that with people and loves to tell the story of, you know, the character and his experience of it. So that lore is out there as well because he loves to talk about it. So it's nice to have that piece of it represented as well. Right. Have that human voice that he got to do. He's always excited to talk about a non-animal as well so jeremy what about you i was gonna say that i was completely shocked by all the covers online that came up of secret tunnel and you know it's funny because a lot of people think it's like a full-length tune somehow that we wrote it was it almost was yeah (laughs) yes (laughs) it's actually you know it's like a chorus and like a verse or something right and these people do these like four minute covers and they like extend them and it's just like amazing to me this one person did this metal version that was so great just couldn't believe it it was so good it worked so well it was epic and i just like feel this pressure because people want a full song and i just have to be like um that's not really how it works so sorry (laughs) it's like so much of the magic in the song obviously is the sum of the parts including the audience you know and the relationship to it and the song itself is just like a cute little ditty but it's just like the context and the the writing and the the characters and the like you were saying janet sort of how it means something a lot more profound to the audience a lot of the audience i think is people who you know are very unique and nonconformists, and especially when they were younger they probably had a hard time fitting in and somehow that song i think is like the anthem for that somehow it was a strange sort of perfect storm of of events that allowed that to happen, you know? And not one person is really responsible for that, which is so cool. I mean, Josh would like everyone to think that it's him, but, you know, it's cool. Right. Um... <laughs> I just think that, and then I have to be reminded. Again, I'm stealing your thunder, dude. Oh, I'm no, so no. sorry. No, like, it wouldn't even be what it is without you. Absolutely not. I, there's no doubt in my mind. But I'm going to find the CD, uh-huh. and I'm oh, going to release it. Great. Oh, my <laughs> I'm going to call it I mean, the original. This is made by um, here, to be sure. I just, we were just riffing on, like, music, and I watch, my kids are now older, they're like 10 and 13, but when... During their pandemic, of course, we watched it like everyone in America, it seemed like, was watching it again. And, you know, we sing like the Momo theme. Like whenever a cat does something silly. Or, you know, and like, I love the title theme. Here, I'll do it. <laughs> it's kind of like nice. when something ends it just lives w- with my family and i think it Aww. lives with a lot of people so, so. Cool. 
I remember one time I was talking, I think it was around second season and I just had a moment with Mike and I'm like, I haven't really heard the Avatar theme song for, I really miss it. And then I think it was like the drilling episode and it just, bam, it was back. And I was like, uh, I said that. I don't know if that's why he put it in. Maybe he may have asked for it. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the kind of thing where it really happened, you know, when there was an avatar state for the most part. Yeah. And if there was no avatar right. state, we wouldn't get it, you know. Yeah. I'm just taking credit for everything. Everything. Right now. the best. So I you love you it. created the art direction, you no. wrote the music. Yeah. You did all the voice acting. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Speaking of voice acting <laughs> and D, me and Mike recorded that episode. Mike invited me to, it was like my first one. And it was just him and I. Sometimes, you know, the writers will be there if it's inside the studio. But I think it was like a different studio. And Dee Bradley Baker was there. And he's like, I kind of have this idea for a voice. And he does Chong. And Mike just goes, what do you think? I'm like, that sounds great. And he's like, me too. I think it sounds great too. And it was like, that's it. I mean, it was easy. like that. It wasn't like, well, it's a little bit. Of course, he nailed it. Yeah. And, and it, it was just yeah. awesome. His command and understanding of... Again, like kind of trusting his gut because of what he's tasked with, the specific kind of VO that he so often does with creatures and stuff. I feel like he's so finely tuned to how something's written and how it might work orally in the ear is like, it's so great. So I love hearing that he kind of nailed it on the first try. And one of the things I was going to say too, um, Jeremy, about what you were saying is, you know, that's one of the things that Mike and Brian, I think, are good about as far as the fan art that comes out of the show and the and covers are absolutely a part of that, which is we made the part that we made. And now what makes it so special is to see what you guys do with it. And again, if it had right. been the really long song that was really specific and every note accounted for, of course, there would be covers of it. But would they be as creative? Would people take as much license as they did? Is it not the Good kind point. of the way that it was delivered is what causes people to be imaginative, more imaginative and create a new version totally. of it and sort of build it out because it, it is literally incomplete and so right. i think that's a good thing yeah, and that's that's not your responsibility you did your part you know what i mean and now people have taken it and they're love they're growing the universe for us yeah i love that that is such a good point yeah that's really beautiful so thank you, Josh, for writing and all the music that you did with that. So again, thank you so much for being the sole voice this of is, this episode this. So, and indeed much of Avatar The Last <laughs> I feel like this is a misrepresentation of what I was trying to say. Oh, uh, it's been so wonderful talking with you guys. I've been looking forward to this since basically episode one. I knew we had to have an episode about the song, and I'm so happy that you were both available. And I know Tim wanted to be here too, but I think possibly yeah. you may have done something to his schedule, Josh, so that it worked out that he couldn't do it, <laughs> yeah. so that you could be the lone rider. Well played, my friend, because you really, right. you were wonderful and, you know, again, as as a new guest of the podcast, it feels great. We're collecting the set and um, I feel really, really excited that you were able to do this. So thank you both so much for, for giving some more time yeah. to Braving the Elements and I hope you both come back. Absolutely. My pleasure, truly. Yes, thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. And so before we go, anything that you would like to let our wonderful, wonderful listeners know about, places to find you on the internet and social media. Jeremy, how about you? I'm on Instagram, Jeremy Zook. Also, Jenna, by the way, thank you so much for pronouncing my last name correctly. Like, 
that never happens. That's oh. really impressive. I was told once, and then I never said it wrong again. As soon as I knew wow. what it was, I was like, great, now I know. Thank you. You're so welcome. Joshua Hamilton, uh, how about you? <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Nailed the name. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. You cannot find me. Good oh, luck. Good for you. <laughs> Stealth style. Yeah. Love it. Well, again, thanks, guys. And uh, everybody else, we will talk to you next week. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to Avatar Braving the Elements. And hey, make sure to subscribe, follow, leave us a review. All of that really helps the podcast so much. And we love you guys. Next week on Braving the Elements, we are recapping Return to Omashu, that episode with the voice of Suki Jenny Kwan. You can follow me on social media at the JV Club on Instagram and at Janet Varney on Twitter. We'll see you next Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>